No. <laughs> far too much effort. This this is an organic effort. This is not a uh, everything's perfect. Transparency is key. Yeah. <laughs> it it works how it works. If it doesn't work well, bad luck. <clears throat> And we are now live on YouTube as well. So we've got YouTube and Periscope. <clears throat> and as you can see, we've got attendees already joining. So oh, there we go. the eager ones. Yeah. I'm assuming Chris Borer is a relation of yours, James. He is, yes. Uh, it's his fault I do the whole public speaking thing because he sorted out my first... Um, public speaking at a cafe sci which by a roundabout route and seven years led to this so you can blame him he also got me on a computer when i was about five six i think um so he can be blamed for most other things as well don't share that picture What's really weird is I've just put the YouTube stream on and everyone's in different locations to what they are on Zoom. Yeah. Well, no, they're not. They're in the same location. They. Oh, no, they're not. Okay, that's really weird. It's not even streaming my view of it. Nope. It's just randomly assorted people. Wonderful. Yeah. <clears throat> right. I'm, I'm quite... It's... Very confusing having the YouTube one open as well. Tell you what, when I'm doing it and I've got my own voice echoing back in my head because I'm playing around with um, voice altering or anything like that, it, it just throws you off completely. It took me hours to get used to not pausing to let myself speak. <laughs> right. We've got a couple on YouTube already. One of those could have been me, but I've gone off it now. So, yeah, I think one of them was you. I don't know who the other one was. Could be yourself. No, no, I'm watching through the studio. It doesn't count that. Um, it's quite clever that way. <clears throat> technology, it's amazing when it works. Well, sometimes it works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's a kicker now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, let's, let's not get started on Zoom security. I've heard enough about it. Everyone's heard enough about it. And we've got someone live tweeting the event. Oh, yeah, I can do that. I'm pressed to quit live tweet as well. Good shout. So we've got three so far out of 20 odd registered, <clears throat> which isn't bad for only two minutes in. Oh. Ooh. Not a great start there, James. <laughs> the host is dead. 
Yeah, he is. <laughs> well. Well, it is a coffee house, and there was the cough. Well, yeah. well, Probably not the best uh, time in the world to be coughing. Quicker way to get whiskey into <laughs> your bloodstream. <laughs> You'll be getting some weird looks if you, do, if you start coughing in public. <laughs> yeah, I try not to go out in public. Or you get a lot of space. It depends which way you look at it. Yeah, there is a, yeah, there's a good side to everything. Yeah. If, uh, if a supermarket aisle's too busy, just look down at it and cough and empty. It's an option. <clears throat> so, uh, James, here's a question. Mm-hmm. Somebody just texted me and said they tried to get on, but they couldn't get a ticket. What should they do? Um, they should YouTube. go to the Eventbrite link and grab a ticket or go to YouTube and they can comment on the YouTube or, or on Twitter. I'm watching the Twitter too. Yeah. I've got too many screens. I've got to use them for something. Oh, here we go. Oh, yeah. I think you're right. I think the tickets expired on the hour. Yes, they do. Oh, it's that right. thing. If you don't let them go over, they expire. Yeah. Right. Give me a second. They'll be able to get a ticket in a minute. If you just um, Google um, YouTube Security Coffee House, it takes you there straight to the live stream anyway. So they can't actually just do that. Got it. Thank you. Tickets. There we go. They can now get tickets. People can, in fact, now get tickets until probably about half an hour after it ends. Um. Right, so Jay, have you got a Twitter handle? You must have. You're in InfoSec. We're all oh, on Twitter. I don't. You I really don't. don't. <laughs> the, only, the only Twitter I've actually got is is purely for OSINT stuff and, and getting feeds in, but I don't actually have an active Twitter. Okay, um, Jay's on LinkedIn, but not Twitter. Yeah. We could fix that quickly. Uh, I might go and create Jay a handle for him. Yeah, we, should, we should all create one whilst they're doing this, and that comes up with the most creative one for it wins. It's just one of these things, though. Just like, I look at Twitter, and there's just, just too much going on in one space. I don't fully understand it, if I'm honest, Jay. It's very I confusing. Just... Like you, you type in something and then you just like I'll, I'll try to build feeds for like security stuff and I just get everything it's like anything that works security and I get I get it it's like I, I don't need half of it the worst part is every single hashtag has some relation to K-pop somewhere down the line as well <laughs> no matter what you search you end up with K-pop videos you're like I didn't want this what's going on it's very confusing <laughs> I've not gone deep enough down that rabbit hole. Right. <clears throat> Shall we say in two minutes we'll kick off properly and everyone who's late can uh, just be square, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah, we'll go with that, James. That's uh... If I can untangle my headset.
Right. So we should have some more turning up, but they are late and therefore it's their own fault if they miss things. Uh, welcome to the first ever, as far as I'm aware, security coffee house. There's not been another one that I know of. Uh, there's probably coffee houses where people talk about security, but not quite in this way. And the idea came out of Cafe Sci, which is an open science movement, uh, but naturally applied to security. <clears throat> concept is similar to the old Parisian salons or the old London coffee houses. You get a bunch of people who may or may not be experts in a subject and you get them talking and ask questions and discuss in the public sphere rather than a formal setting. So we encourage everyone who's uh, participating, whether you're audience or panel, to have a drink on hand. Non-alcoholic is fine, but do have a drink, relax. This is an informal, casual occasion and you can throw questions in. So to throw questions in, your options are you should have a raise hand button down at the bottom and you also will have the Q&A button where you can type them in and I will then throw them at the panel. And to start off with, uh, introductions. So let's go with alphabetical order by first name just to throw it off from our quick call last night. And Jay, that puts you first. Hi, so my name's uh, Jay. I, I, I'm a cybersecurity professional, but I normally look at more the blue team side. Uh, I do dabble in a little bit of red, just purely for my knowledge, but I'm more blue team. So that's defending networks, um, vulnerability management, risk management, all the good stuff, all the really ex exciting stuff. But that's me. I've been doing that for three years now. I've been in IT for roughly around eight years, um, both private sector and public sector. Okay, and Christina, you're up next. All right, so um, I'm the power of Digital Policy Girl, my book. I've been dubbed the Digital Policy Sherpa by Mike Elgin. And what I do is I help organizations get digital right. It is hard and it has the span. Anything from security, privacy to branding, SEO, I work with marketing teams, HR, IT, uh, legal, and everybody else throughout the organization to get all of that stuff shored up right and get a nice balance between opportunity and risk, making sure we're not creating shelfware. Um, as I said yesterday, you know, we don't want to see any PDFs, long PDFs on SharePoint telling people what to do and not to do. We want to make it reasonable, actionable, and fun. So that's what I do. And Lee, you're up next. Yeah, um, so I'm Lee. I'm one of the directors at Your CyberSec. Um, I've been in IT security, information security for about eight years, um, mainly working in sales um, for vendors until uh, we founded Your CyberSec to bring a different, uh, different way for companies to procure to the market in the UK, um, acting as brokers. Um, so working with them to understand the requirements and assess what they actually need rather than what they want sometimes um, you know if it's there for compliance or if it's someone's if they've read an article saying we need to do a pen test let's understand what you need to do and um, where's best to actually use that investment that's what we do and I'm your host so I will probably not be taking an active part in the panel discussion unless someone says something that uh, irritates me or gets me particularly enthusiastic 
I'm mainly here to represent you in the audience and rudely butt in and interrupt the panellists if you want clarification or to throw any questions at them. And for this one, uh, our first one, we're looking at universal skills or universally useful skills across security. And as mentioned, we are trying to do something that's not purely cyber. There is more to security than cyber, although that's um, something that offends a number of people. I got blocked on LinkedIn for suggesting it just recently. <sighs> and let's kick off with the first question. And we'll go in the same order as introductions. So, uh, Jay, what skills and methods do you think or do you know are required to get different parts of an organization to buy into a single goal and prioritize security? Should these be something that we look at when we're looking at essential security skills? And to the rest of the panel, do feel free to interrupt Jay if you disagree with something. Otherwise, we'll get to you in a moment. So I think the, the, the best thing for a security function to have is the ability to talk business and align with the business as well. So align your security objectives with the business objectives because then it complements it a little bit better. So you need to be ensuring what, what, what they want to secure is, is really at the forefront of your mind and provide value as well. So don't just say, I'm going to secure it. I'm going to secure it, but go the extra mile. And this is why. Because if you do that, then you get a bit more of a positive feedback from the business. Thank you. And Christina, obviously, you're in digital policy. So, um... you know, I'm all about having a methodology around what we're doing. So I think awareness is key. And having somebody who actually owns security, regardless of whether it's physical or cyber, having the ability for that individual to define what are the guardrails that are going to keep us safe and from going off the cliff, making sure that that person actually gets a chance in a very aware, organizationally aware uh, situation, like Jay mentioned be able to define that, get it out the door, disseminating it to people. So don't do the SharePoint PDF thing and make people read it because that's a snoozer and nobody wants to do it. Um, making sure that you can actually get a policy implemented in the organization and certainly awareness in terms of measurement. Is this working? Is it not? Am I working? Am I not? And how do we adjust to make it work? I think that that's really the, the skill set that you need to have. Okay, thank you. And to our last panic list, as our live tweeter has named us. Um, Lee, same question uh, to you. Yeah, so um, it kind of, all, all these work really well together, I think. And one of the main things for me is having people understand their limits and resources and capabilities within the company, um, which tags into ownership. So, you know, if somebody wants to own it, they need to be certain that they have the skill sets. And with that, they need to be able to communicate well with the rest of the company that, what they're going to be doing and put you know helping to put it in place and um, there's too many times when places have um taken something on and soon found themselves floundering and not knowing what they're doing um, so for me actually understanding your own capabilities resources and then having a plan as well okay i'm going to come back to that question because i've thought a few have a few more to ask around it, uh, but we'll do that in a bit. So the next one, and this is going to be interesting because obviously we're all cyber or digital focused people here, but I think this is an important one and it's what skills 
traits or knowledge are important in both cyber and physical. And physical, of course, includes food security, it includes uh, man guarding, it includes close protection, executive protection, all sorts of other things that we don't necessarily think about too much in cyber, where physical security can be relegated to it's the boundary of the office. What skills, traits or knowledge are important in both cyber and physical security practices? And other than specific domain knowledge bases, is there a significant distinction in the fundamental skills required? So we'll go in a completely different order to throw everyone off and start with Lee. That is a very long question, James. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, skill sets and uh, requirements that kind of go across both cyber and into general security still fall into um, you know, similar things again. Um, communication, um, having an understanding um, of what you're supposed to be doing and a plan. Um, and, um, you know, it's... There's, there's, there are lots and lots of crossovers and there's some of the things you need to understand is what is your, um, I want to say threat, but it, that just takes me straight to cyber. So, you know, what's your threat landscape, but it's, you know, what's your um, company image, what's your personal image and things out there as well, which, um, you know, you need to understand what's out there about you in terms of physical security as well. You know, do you have things out there that shouldn't be on your website um, or wherever it may be, you know, blueprints to a nuclear facility site, for example, flying a drone around a new nuclear facility site. It's um, not really cyber related, more security related, but I've seen that happen. So understanding things like that. And Christina. I'm going to stick to my prized answer of awareness and context. So I think that if I stop and think about it, at this moment when we're all working remotely, right, it's all about sort of the digital aspect and connecting, but there's such a physical aspect to it that a lot of folks aren't thinking about. Things like, can my spouse hear my conference calls that have privileged information that shouldn't be heard? Um, is it about the institute that is actually next door to me that allows me to actually come onto their campus? I can actually freely roam their campus. I can actually see their server loads, believe it or not, without ever checking in, there's no badging because what they've done is this huge level of awareness of what's proprietary, what ought to be protected versus what should not be protected. And so I think awareness across sort of an omni-channel universe, whether we're talking digital, we're talking physical, uh, we're talking any other mechanism I think is key in having that covered across the board, which comes back to awareness, awareness of what are the risks and what are the opportunities and where do you wanna come out on that uh, balance as an organization and also as an individual because it applies to you and me as well as it does to an organization. But I think that that's critical and I think that that's one of the biggest skills that I see undervalued these days, right? People don't think about awareness and context. Okay, and finally, Jay? So I think the, the, the best thing to do, and I know threat is a very cyber term, but understanding the industry that you're in because uh, threats are different for each individual industry industry so one industry may make you a, a more of a target and another industry may not make you less of a target it's having, having the ability to understand what threats may post your industry and, and who are you protecting and what are you protecting because that determines the level of security or level of physical security you're going to need for that certain individual that asset to the company whether it be a computer or a person levels of security need to be measured by the threat 
it's about understanding the risk, isn't it? And the level of risk. Exactly that. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go off script for the next question because we've got some from the audience and one of them's related and I'll paraphrase it. Um, how much of communication is human and how would you communicate risk to other humans effectively? So, Just jump in wherever you want to there. Bit more. Yeah. Go so on, I think when we want to talk about risk, we need to do it in a language that they understand. So let's just say that you're a business that relies on finances a lot and finances is one of your big assets and you've got a higher turnover. So I think you want to be talking language that you've quantified that, that risk in such a way that you're presenting it in a value, such as if you are, if, if this risk comes to fruition, you're going to lose X amount of money or you're going to be subject to this kind of regulatory fine. So once you present that, they're going to be, their eyes are going to be open wide. They're going to be like, oh, okay, you know, we, we could lose a lot of money here. So I think you need to, when you're presenting a risk, you need to speak the language that they understand or they want to hear. One of the best ways that I find for communicating these things is it sounds silly, but it's through analogies. So putting stuff into, you know, everyday things where people may understand things. So, you know, when you're talking security, if I'm speaking to people who aren't within the security sector, because people, when I speak to them, I say, I'm, you know, involved in cybersecurity. Like, oh, they get really interested until you use fancy words um, apart from penetration testing everyone sniggers but you know but you start saying things about vulnerability management asset management and it was like oh okay so putting into a context of an analogy i use with that is well let's think of your data you know the things you're trying to protect is your house and you, then you, you start personalizing it for them yeah. so if depending on how and why you're communicating it to them um, can be a massive factor. So as Jay rightly put, you know, if you're speaking to someone in finance, you know, in financial industry, you're speaking more corporate, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, you point something to their language, you can start speaking financials, talk about fines. But if you then start speaking to say a sports team, for example, you start talking about reputational damage and loss, you know, loss of fans, and you can put stuff into more uh, different contexts that way as well. I think that you're both right, but to me, I think communication is all human. So I think one of the things that we tend to mistake in most organizations is that we pretend that it's sort of a thing, a blob that we're trying to educate around risk and around security. And what we tend to do is think that we can actually say the message once and we're done versus actually giving it in bite-sized pieces in context of what people are already doing. I don't think that people intentionally try to do bad things I think people either get carried away or they don't know any better. And I think um, to a few years ago where we had somebody in Denmark who liked an official press release from their company, it just so turns out that it was a pharmaceutical company and the press release was that about a, a drug and you're not allowed to actually promote drugs or biopharma products in the EU. And so great example of an employee doing something, not really thinking about it, got fined for several things, privacy included, but actually there was an issue I think also with security um, in terms of the release had come out ahead of schedule, et cetera. So, you know, great example of people trying to do the right thing, ending kind of up doing the wrong thing. And I think it comes back to the fact that we don't treat communication as fundamentally human and delivering the messages in a way that relate to people, which I think goes beyond just explaining brand damage or regulatory fines, because don't, I don't think resonate necessarily on a personal level in a way that actually causes people to emotionally respond in the moment when they're about to take an action. Okay, uh, we've, we've started down a rabbit hole here because I'm going to go on with the next one now, which is similar, 
So it's about getting the employee to take security seriously. Mm. So physical is very easy to take physical security seriously because it's an attack on your person. And people hire bodyguards, guards, security staff to deal with that sort of attack. But how can we make people take a risk in cybersecurity that seriously? So if they make a mistake and get fished and the entire logistics company is then down for a week where it's costing you two billion a day, not that that's an actual example, um, someone gets fired at worst. How can you translate those consequences and get people to take that personal responsibility? So I actually have a perfect example of that. I have a financial services client who does exactly that. They actually run mock phishing incidences throughout the organization. The first time that somebody slips up, they do a counseling and they actually go through a round of retraining them. The second time they slip up, security comes and exits them out of the building. The policy applies to everybody all the way up through the C-suite because that's really important, right? The executives aren't exempt from this. And uh, it works, you know, they haven't had any kind of a security incident in the last two and a half years that they've implemented this process. So I think that's one extreme. I think it is an extreme and I think that you don't have to go that far. I think that the way that you can actually get, and, you know, not to sound like a broken record, but I think the way to get employees engaged is to make it relevant to them and to make it a habit almost. So things like when they log onto the network, having a little message in a uh, splash screen, you know, a splash screen that calls out perhaps the latest incident or things to be aware of, or doing spot bonuses and high fives to people who do a really great job around security and calling out the good deeds and the right practices, uh, putting up little notes next to the elevator on the, you know, morning sign when people are actually taking it up into the building in terms of what to be aware of or tips of the day. I think all of those things are ways to incorporate security into the everyday life and make it awareness. Just like you talked about a moment ago in terms of physical awareness, right? We'd be very aware of a guy in a dark trench coat. We need to be just as aware when we get a phishing email and the URL especially says phishing slash click here on HTML, that that might be a clue. But I think it goes back in, you know, awareness and training and really making it second nature so that it's embedded into who we are rather than something that we have to think about in a siloed way. I think it's quite hardened um, with some of this. So like with a phishing example, there was one in the UK where um, there was a woman who accidentally picked a phishing email and she lost her company millions. And then the company tried suing her for it, for saying she was neglected, but it turns out she hadn't had any training. But I think part of the problem is you've there's, Loads of different training providers, training platforms, wherever it may be out there, like someone's mentioned no before in the question, which, you know, is Gartner Magic Quadrant's a great solution, but I work with 11 different ones and it's about finding the right fit. And everybody learns in different ways. So some people, you know, if you do a fishing training, you send a fishing simulation, what is the training? <coughs> counseling. If I had to sit down with someone and go through counseling with it in the nicest way for me, that wouldn't work at all. I would just switch off and feel I was being victimized and kind of picked on because you've been singled out. Yes, you made a bit of a mistake, but you've been singled out. So for me, for getting training to cybersecurity, you need to relate it into personal life as well. So they actually care more. Because it's as you said, the, for the most part, the worst case scenario is someone clicks a phishing email in an office is the company, they lose their jobs, but the company is the main one that suffers in that instance. So you need to try and take it forward and make it more personal about how it can affect them in their personal life. And, um, and that's what I found is 
training, security, cyber security awareness, security awareness training isn't just about teaching them how to be secure in, at work. It's about the broader picture, you know, because everyone has personal emails. So why are you just teaching them just to be secure on work emails and just look out for things like invoice fraud there? It's, you know, I've been, um, I, everyone here, uh, all the people watching and all the pies I'm sure receive at least 15 to 20 phishing attempts into their junk box every single day. Um, one of the funniest things you can actually do is read through them. They are amazing. They are so funny. But it's it's showing that you're getting them at home, not just in the office. So it's just what to look out for and just kind of make it relatable, both in the corporate world and in the personal world as well. Um, that, that's how I think you can get it to stick to people a bit more. So I just want to touch up on that a little bit as well, because I used to run a security awareness training program. I'm a previous employer. And uh, one of the things I found to be most effective is just to, you know, Add, add, add a little bit of value to it in terms of, you know, related to their life. Uh, so one thing that I did was um, I was, I put a bit of, a bit in there about how to protect children uh, online. And then this is why, because this has happened or X, Y, and Z situations has happened. And then gave them a real world example of what's happened. And then they suddenly go, Oh, okay. I might need to take this seriously. And then you add a little bit more incentive to it. So I, I put an example in there of um, a man lost all of his savings because he, we fell for a telephone scam and it's just little little things like that it's just adding a little bit of a, a shock value but not trying to scare people and then once you've given them the shock value reassure them and say this is what you can do to stop this from happening this is what you need to do and actually give them a way to action on it because the worst thing you can do as a security professional is shock someone to death that they don't want to come near a computer you want <laughs> to give bad. them the skills <laughs> you, you want to give them the skills to like take it back to not just the work life, but their personal life as well and protect their family and the business. Because that vigilance, you know, it play once you once you nurture it, it's there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to dig down a bit deeper into that. And you have started to talk about it. Uh, and it's from the same person, but saying that's not really relevant to the person. The person gets fired. The company potentially goes bust and a lot of other people lose their livelihoods or there's huge damage to it or the customer list leaks. There's damage which is way out of proportion to the consequences for that individual. So how can you make it personal? How can you give a personal awareness of the consequences of it? And there is the comment that they're not sure if there is a clear answer. They're not sure if there is a way to create that clear link between you really need to be secure you really need to care about this and there are consequences beyond you yeah it's it, it's yeah. a very sorry christina <laughs> I just don't know. no it's okay i was like what? <laughs> go yeah, for it, it. it's uh, it is very very hard to make it personal without as jay said scaring them too much um i mean we I, i've done projects where we've done social engineering and red teaming um exercises across the board and um, one of them we had to go into a company and get the ceo's personal bank details and um, it took all of one night to do um but that was because they wanted to drive home how easily some of this stuff can happen but that's the extreme but it's you just don't want to scare people use real world examples but not scare them so really what you could do to bring, drive it home is actually do a full online OSIN profile on every single employee and staff before you do it it's easy now i mean People share far too much on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just on everything in general in everyday life. If you want to drive it home why they need to do this, you could quite easily 
do that on every single member of staff. Now, nobody would ever actually want to do that because one, for data protection and privacy re uh, reasons, I can imagine there's all sorts of reasons you wouldn't really want to do it. Um, but also it's, then you get in very, um, what's it called? I can't think of the term. It's uh, too late on a Saturday night. Um, Big Brother, where you're just watching kind of everything and you can say exactly what's going on. And you don't want to come across as that. So um, it's, it's very, very hard to actually show and make it really personal without stepping over a boundary of making it too personal and time efficient as well. I think you have to make it personal. I mean, I'm thinking about the fact that most people right now are working remotely. They're working probably from their homes, So it's already gotten personal, right? Because there's actually a lot of devices that are sitting, corporate devices that are sitting in people's homes and how well are the networks protected? How well is the physical security being taken into um, consideration? And so I, I think it already is personal. I think where we start to fail is extending what that actually means, right? So it is personal, but how do you make it relevant? And I think kind of going back to what Lee and Jay have said before, which is explain the consequences is really helpful. Uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot because it seems like everybody around me has been doing this is sharing their high school photos, right? In support of the class of 2020, let's share you know, our high school photos, not thinking about things like, hey, you know, my high school mascot is one of the <laughs> retrieval uh, questions for my password with a bank, right? And the same thing for a lot of corporate environments. And so I think that helping set people through scenarios, giving them awareness, helping them understand how little things, right, can actually cause an issue is the curry. And I'll tell you personally, I mean, I'm a digital policy girl, right? So I'm sitting last week working with my kid next to me because that's what I do now. I partially homeschool, right? And I took a selfie for his uh, teacher because she wanted a selfie of us as he was working on his laptop. And I was about to tweet, right? Saying like, ooh, poor me, here I am homeschooling. And I literally caught myself before I did it because his name, his student ID on the back of that laptop. And again, hadn't thought about it, right, until I snapped it and I was about to share it and I was like, whoa, hang on, time out, right, awareness, check myself, is that really the thing to share? And it might have been fine, but it also could have exposed quite a bit of information that could have been easily hacked and used, not just right now, but also three years down the road. And so I think awareness, I know that sounds like a broken record, but awareness and education and continually on repeat, loop, 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 I think is the answer. I think to continue the education and the awareness is you can't always send the same message either though as well. You are right. It's not just, oh, I taught you, cool, right, bosh, done, next. With these types of things, because the threat landscape is ever evolving, you need to keep up to date with some of the latest messages. You know, it's as, as much as I got one recently, a fishing one, you know, it's very rare you're going to get your fifth cousin removed who's fallen onto a load of wealth and wants to transfer it through your bank account. You know, they're, they're gone on those days as much now, you know, people are getting much more sophisticated because people are sharing. Targeted phishing, targeted attempts are far easier. Um, you know, it's a, a full actual life cycle one now, you know, you start at the beginning, you're doing your OSINT, you're doing your deep dive, you know, there's, there's so much free, so many free tools out there. You can start looking at your showdown and um, harvester and all sorts to find out whatever you want about companies and people and then you take that on you phone them up because it's not hard to get someone's phone number and get information from them that way and you start piecing these things together so when you actually come to send a phishing attempt a phishing attack it takes one go and it's 
educating people about what they're sharing. I mean, I'm speaking to an accountancy firm next week um, where they have decided that um, on the, they want to do a bio about every member of staff and on it, they've got how many pets do you have and what are their names? Where did you, where did you grow up? And it's exactly that. It's like, oh, cool. So these are all your security answers. Fantastic. Lovely. Cheers for that. But part of the problem is companies nowadays want to be seen as fresh and hip and cool. And they want to share this to try and make themselves seem personable. And I think from a security standpoint, that is awful. It's nicest way you're an accountant. I don't really care about how many dogs you've got, if I'm honest. Um, you're there to do my accounts and save me tax. Uh, yeah, I, I don't care if you got two dogs, but thanks for that. It's um, You've helped me build up a lovely profile against an accountancy firm. So, yeah, it's it needs to be continuously ongoing and just explain to people as well. The easiest way would just be to like I said, do a profile on every single person, but it's um, time-consuming and not cost-effective for organizations to do that. Yeah, Lee, I have a question, actually. James, can I ask you a question? I'm sort of just curious. I know I'm not the host. We, we don't have any all... rules. We don't have any rules? Okay. <laughs> well, I'm just sort of curious because, uh, you know, what I've noticed is that even though we're talking about risk and we're talking about awareness and really training individuals, et cetera, I'm still seeing most organizations do those annual trainings where it's like click, 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 next, click, 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 next, click, click, quiz, 80% pass, check the box number next. And I'm wondering how many other folks are seeing innovative ways of training that are beyond that once a year, you know, crazy, I want to shoot myself training. Things are starting to change in that landscape, which is fantastic. Like there's, um, but there are still too many that do it exactly that way, Christina, you're not wrong. It's um, in, in the same way you can take that across other security from doing actual security testing of systems and infrastructure. Too many times people think, oh, I do an annual pen test, I'm secure. It's like, who cares? You do it once a year. In theory, you know, if you had done that on a web application or, you know, any infrastructure, then let's say Heartbleed came out two days later, that was unknown. Well, who cares? That's pretty much out of date now. You know, it's too late. You need to be looking at continuous management of these things. So you, you, you said you're working with a company that's got um, that's using a platform where they do continuous fishing um, things or, you know, regular fishing uh, assessments and they've got a two-strike rule. Um, for me, that two-strike rule sounds horrendous. I'm just going to throw that out there. I think that's, <laughs> that's far too tight for, uh, on people, especially, well, I suppose it depends on the fishing emails and the training they've had with it. Um, but no, companies are starting to wise up to think, right, we need to do continuous stuff. We need to build this into actual work, working life as well. It can't just be, you know, right, this Thursday, we're going to do half an hour. Everyone's going to sit and do training. It's better to try and actually build it into the working day and show them things along the way. So build it into policies, working policies. For example, you know, you, you can put stuff in there, you know, when the, when your project starts, this is it, you know, security by design is just becoming more and more important um, with all projects. Um, because that's one of my pet peeves, I'm going to swerve the conversation now before I rant about security by design, <laughs> because I'm really interested in the answer to Marius's question, who's transitioned from physical security to cyber and was wondering whether in the experience of the panic lists uh, you believe soft skills communication intuition and how to and whether to diffuse a situation or find the culprit would help for a career in cybersecurity as well as physical security so we'll start with jay because you've been quiet yes. for a bit so definitely uh, i think one of the things that i was thinking about earlier was uh, 
as an analyst, you look at a SIM tool, you get all these different alerts, and initially you start panicking. And I think you just have the ability to just slow down, look at the bigger picture, and then just communicate a bit more instead of just trying to jump to conclusions. I think having that ability to, re, you know, think outside the box during high pressure situations and, and manage yourself, it's just, it, it, it works wonders. It really sets the, 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 the good security operators from the bad operators because you're making informed, intuitive decisions about what you're seeing. You're not jumping to the conclusions because if you jump to the wrong conclusion, you may impact the business in a negative way, such as you may put the wrong firewall block in, you may block the wrong URL and all of a sudden you've got people screaming because they can't do a business function because you've miscategorized it because you've panicked. And I think you need to just have that ability to slow down, look at the bigger picture. And I think that kind of skill is just paramount in security. Yeah. Real, but I mean, um, I work with quite a lot of consultants outside of, um, obviously, Jay, you've gone into working in the corporate life, you know, doing the security analyst part. I work with quite a lot of consultants who you know, used to work in security and used to work in the forces. And the level to detail and the attention that they put in is just second to none. It's absolutely amazing. And again, it's they use analogies and examples where they actually relate it outside of cyber outside of information security outside of the corporate world and put it into you know other contexts and um, some of the best people who um, i've worked with as well the way that they thought about security was again you know it's like a fort it's like you're building a castle you know you, you know, you're building your moats up there you're putting your turrets you're building it's you know putting defense in depth and people in security whether coming from outside of that can think like that very easily and very quickly you know thinking about how are we doing continuous scans how are we doing you know continuous checks and also it's um <laughs> some of the social engineering things i do which is we're breaking into buildings breaking into sites and uh, people who come from an actual security background previously they love doing that type of stuff it's <laughs> i think they find it far more interesting and um, they tend to handle it very, very well. Um, and, you know, diffusing a situation is fantastic. If you get caught doing that, it's right. Part of the test at that point then is, does the person there actually know what to do when they've caught someone who has got into the office, got into a facility who shouldn't be there? But if you can diffuse the situation and you're the attacker and you can get them back on your side and you can walk away again and continue on doing whatever you were doing, fantastic. Um, so it's it does translate really well into the security side on the consultancy not just for the red team and not just the blue team in there that jay was talking about and jay does and just to sort of top all of that off i would add that you know cybersecurity is an organizational issue it's not an it it's not a security issue and so if you have those soft skills i think you're really good not just at knowledge uh, but communications the ability to mediate and be the moderator for the organization on the whole and bring the cybersecurity issue to the forefront and involve everybody throughout. And so, you know, what I see from a policy perspective is when we get people who have those abilities to communicate, to empathize, to understand, to facilitate, to diffuse, what they do the best job of is getting everybody's buy-in. And at the end of the day, I think that that's what moves the, the cybersecurity effort forward. And so yay for those types of skills. They should all have them. Um, yeah, and stop speaking sense, Christina, saying cybersecurity is not just IT. You speak to anyone else. <laughs> you speak to any C-level organization, any, uh, anything information security or cyber, well, that's an IT issue. Surely that's an yeah. IT issue. Data protection, on a server, that's uh, IT on, as well. 
Right, I'm going to throw in another question in response to that, and this is my question. How much of that is the fault of us in cybersecurity for saying that we're in some sort of special area that it's all technical, it's highly technical, we have to control it, you have to understand it from a technical point of view, instead of saying, is it broader security? Should we be talking more to people in security? That 100%. <laughs> Yeah, it's that. Uh, well, if, if it's someone else's fault, it works well. Um, you know, if you can blame it on a machine and not on a person as easily, yeah, people are going to be all for that as well. But um, I think part of that um, comes down to the people who are at the top tend to be of an older generation. So it's easier for them to pass the blame to something that they don't necessarily understand as well. So it's not necessarily, you know, the technical people out there, but it's um, your cyber has that connotation of, you know, the matrix, which is, you know, very technical and glitchy and things. So I just, I, I don't think it's the people in tech like yourself, James and Jay and Christina. I think it's more, it's outside of that as well. It's kind of everyone. <laughs> he's, he's, see, you can tell Jay's in tech and a hacker because he's put his hood up. So. <laughs> oh, Hang on. Ooh. now we're talking. <laughs> Stop photo time. <laughs> yeah, stop. We just need binary code flying around in the background and then uh, we've nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I personally, I, you know, I think it's actually IT's fault and cybersecurity professionals' fault because I think historically there's been a little bit of a power play. And what we haven't done is, is a good job of rebranding that to say we're here to support and enable you. And going back to what Jay said, really thinking through what are we doing? And is that going to preclude somebody or is that going to enable them to get business done? And so I think that if we can kind of turn the table on this and really start to kind of get people to understand that we're actually here to ensure business can continue, that you can actually get your job done. I think people get more excited by that and start to see, you know, the, the security folks, whether it's physical or it's digital, et cetera, I think they start to see them as partners and enablers in the organization. And I think that's what we actually need. So basically we need a rebranding job here. New should do it. Yeah, I worked with one company where they wanted to do an information security program. And I sat down with them. I had the IT team and I had their CFO and I started talking about information security and specific lens cases, 27,001. And their CFO went, oh, information security. Well, you do that, you're IT. And they were like, nope, I ain't got a clue about this. And um, we're IT support. We keep the company running. As they're saying, we don't know anything. Information security is far bigger than IT support. You know, that goes down to how do you um, validate a new supplier's bank details before you pay them? If someone sends you a change of bank details, how do you check them? What's your, you know, what's the policy and procedure for actually checking that? That's not an IT issue. That comes down, well, that's down to information security. So that falls inside that. Partly, I mean, if you look at things like um, PCI gets lumped on IT a lot, but information security. And I said, there aren't that many controls that are specifically technology based. They can be wrapped up in IT and technology, but when you start looking outside of that, it's the whole company. Cybersecurity and information security is a whole company issue, and it's a personal issue. It goes into their home life. So when you do these, uh, when I've been doing a lot of these Zoom calls and networking, because we've all had a lot of time on our hands recently. So I've sat on a lot of them. Um, one of the questions I like to ask is, from a show of hands, who has ever logged onto their router as admin and actually changed 
the credentials to log on to the router, the standard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Do that in a call with lots of different networking people. Nobody puts their hand up. <laughs> I'm like just do that for me please people I was like, it's an easy one to do but people think oh my god this guy's a wizard so no really it's just common sense <laughs> so, so yeah okay I'm going to we've got a whole series of questions now but I'm going to try and compress them down into one um so looking at it from the damage point of view, combining two people's questions here, going back to that, someone at the company clicks on a malicious link and the company goes bust and they get fired. <clears throat> where it's actually a malicious person, where they've got a grudge, where they're annoyed, where they've just had a bad day because the coffee machine was broken that morning, which I can absolutely understand. Um, the consequence for them is much, much smaller than for the company. So where it's someone malicious, there is obviously a completely disproportionate amount of damage they can do with very little effort just by being negligent. There's not really an answer to that one, but bringing it in, talking about the types of damage for a company, obviously you've got physical with physical security and potentially with some cyber, particularly if you've got a massive drone delivery network which sounds like a great idea with no downside. Uh, legal, reputational, financial, moral, ethical. What other types of damage? And how do you assess those types of damage, whether it's for a company or for an individual? Anybody want to jump on? Oh. <laughs> I think... I think it really boils down to what the target was. What was the damage that they caused? What were they looking at? You know, what were they looking to exploit? Was it an information system with you know, confidential information, sensitive information, or was it just something that was public disclosure? So I think the, the, the situation really defines the actual impact of the damage. Um, so let's just say, for example, it was something with sensitive information on. We, we really need to look at, okay, well, how damaging is that to the the security program and, and the company as a whole so if it's customer information that's going to have a huge impact not just reputationally but financially it's going to have a huge impact as well because it in, especially in the eu with gdpr it's going to be massive but if it's something like oh it's just a little bit of information about one of our critical systems which we've got super secure then maybe it's not so bad so I think it really determines on the actual situation that's actually happened. And I think you actually need to understand also the extent of where the information is being communicated, right? So it's the difference of me taking sensitive data or data from an organization as I leave with me, which is not okay, right? But what happens if I start to publish that in the dark web area or on social media or in different channels as well? And so I like to actually do more of a structured risk assessment Right, so we can actually try and understand the level of threat that we're actually encountering from the disgruntled employee if they're leaving, et cetera. And I think that then it becomes a much bigger conversation within the business that goes not just down into what information has actually been put there at risk and let's try to triage the situation, but it starts to involve conversations like, do we have cyber insurance? You know, what does that cover? What kind of crisis media do we actually need to put in place? And it really starts to be a multi-pronged plan but it depends again on the threshold and again, the, the risk 
kind of aspect of that. How much of a damage are we actually facing? And I think most organizations aren't organized enough to understand that in a reasonable time frame these days. Um, instead, you know, they're just sort of very reactionary. I like to actually take it from a front view approach, which is that's a very likely scenario. So have we thought through that that could happen? And what do we put in place ahead of time to mitigate or minimize the risk occurring in the first place? And then what's the actual reaction plan? So once it does happen, we all know what the role is that we can just go on our merry way and execute. I'm, I am getting fed up with you speaking sense, Christina. It's very infuriating. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it's it's kind of a cross pin too. It, it comes down to, for me, it's the type of company, the type of data, or you know, the the jewels that are being done, how it's being done, and why. So if it's someone who's accidentally done it, it's completely different to someone who's done it maliciously. So it's like. Look at two companies that completely different industries, but similar size-ish in my head anyway. Talk Talk and Morrison's. Um, th this is probably going to be more James and Jay that get these references. Christina, apologies. <laughs> but obviously Talk Talk, they they had a little snafu, we'll call it, a few years ago, um, where um, obviously there was the big breach, and then they you know responded to it horrendously bad. Um, the information that was lost, you know, was, there was personal stuff in there, but that was done by an honest mistake by someone. And, um, you know, it was someone, it was a very low level thing that I think everyone kind of thinks, oh, well, someone would have taken care of that because it's an obvious thing. And no one actually did. Um, but their reputational damage was huge. And, um, you know, the person, um, I can't remember her name. I just read it. The sort of person who was in charge at the time, she's actually now in charge of the NHS app isn't she? The um, scanning one. Yeah, the NHSX app. Yeah, so she's in charge of that. So from uh, our industry over here, that already is on a little bit of a back foot for its credibility, we'll say a little bit. So it's gone past just the reputational damage of the company. There's been a reputational damage of the person who was in charge at the time, and then that has carried across onto the new company as well. So this is something that needs to be highlighted to C-suite. But then you look at Morrison's, it's a completely different um, situation where that person has been, um, you know, there was a malicious actor there. They had, I think they were put on like performance. They were told they were essentially they were going to get fired because they were shopping at the job. Then they just went and sent an email off saying, oh, can I please have access to everyone's payroll data? It's for an internal audit. They didn't have any policies, procedures or anything in place to actually get that verified by his manager and above him. He took that and then just went and posted that everywhere. And I think he went and sent it to some newspapers and things. So um, Morrison's are coming off the back of that, but that's not that well known outside of the people who were directly affected and within our industry. Whereas Talk Talk, people tend to know about it more as well. So I think it comes down to the type of attack and damage and company that you are as well. Um, so, yeah, tangent there, sorry, but yeah. <laughs> I'd like it. Yeah. Examples make like make it easier for me. <laughs> it's uh, I can think about it a little bit more, put paint the picture to myself. It's fine. We can handle tangents. Um, so carrying on on a similar sort of damagey thing, and this one was actually aimed at you particularly, Christina, although everyone else as well. I'm kidding. Duck, ducking doesn't help. Um, <laughs> 
we know that insecurity. It doesn't matter if you're in the firing right. line or not, you get blamed. So we used to teach SLEP. Um, this is obviously from an academic viewpoint, which was social, legal, ethical, professional. And again, this goes back to how can you convince or lend weight to the people you're trying to teach or the people who are targeted? It's much easier with physical because they're actually being targeted. But social, legal, ethical, professional, to what extent and how might you use those aspects to convince employees uh, whether it's the ones that talk talk taking responsibility for ensuring that SQL injection vulnerabilities are closed or at Morrison's where it's someone who has an unreasonable but has a grudge against the company and is going to do something malicious and I think the court case has just been resolved that vicarious responsibility does not apply so they're not getting a massive fine it was the individual's fault but it got very very close to the company being fine for the actions of one disgruntled employee. Yeah, so, you know, I think that when I think about this, I, I think about it from an interesting non-security perspective in a way. I think back to when we all started in social media a number of years ago, there was a craze around social media policy. And it was like, do all of these things and don't do all of these things. And it was almost like prescriptive, right? And then we started asking the questions like, are you hiring stupid people? And the answer was like, no, we're not hiring stupid people. We're hiring smart people and we're hiring them because we think they're smart and we think they're confident. So we started to rewrite the policies and say, okay, baseline assumption is you're smart and you're confident and you can make good decisions. That's why we hired you. That's why you work here. And what we need to actually do is lay on top of that some fundamental training. And as an organization, we do have some guiding principles, right? So as an organization, this is what we believe and here's what we stand for. If as an organization, your ethical values, your legal values, your regulatory commitment is much higher, then that's the bar you're going to expect from individuals. And I think that you can actually look through training, communication, reinforcement to actually align those two things together. But I think you have to start there, right? I think that when we talk about people going off of the uh, ranch and doing some really crazy things, I think yeah, they're the outliers. And I think at some point you have to recognize the fact that some people might just do bad things because they don't understand differently. And if they're past the point of training, maybe they need to be kicked off the bus. I know that sounds harsh. I might get like tons of crazy tweets about that. But I think we have to be rational here. Look at the population, look at who and what are we working with? What can we train them to? And then literally play into those traits, the legal, the ethical, the what do we believe, you are a part of something, and then bring that back to awareness and context. Because here's the thing, nine out of 10 times when we ask people what they should do in a situation, even if they haven't had security training, they know it's common sense, like don't accept a candy bar in exchange for your password. Don't use the same password for your home computer and your work computer, right? There's just like some basic hygiene things. Right. So I think that that's where you have to start. You have to start with a baseline. Right. And then work your way up there. But I think that the companies are mostly negligent at not creating that awareness amongst people and not bring to the forefront the discussion and the cues that are required. And I think they happen very informally, not through that once a year training and the check the box exercises. They happen by having it be part of the culture, part of what we do, part of what we believe in collectively and bringing it back to the fact that you need to be aware you might face a scenario for which we did not provide an explanation. It is entirely possible that somebody will approach you in some context 
that we have not covered at work. And you need to be aware and you need to be informed and you need to engage your brain. And that's what we expect from you. And I think that if you marry that up with performance reviews, with bonuses, tied into other incentives, as well as, hmm, you know, this is your seventh phishing um, attempt that you've actually failed, maybe it is time to escort you out of the building. Um, so I think that that's sort of the combination to use, but you know, I think it's a great question. And I love the fact that you're bringing the legal and the ethical aspect back into it because organizations fail, I think, thinking too much just about the legal aspect and not balancing it out with the ethics and what the organization stands for. And that's a long soapbox, so I'm gonna be quiet now. I, I think you brought up a good point is a lot of security is common sense which is a massive issue for a, quite a lot of people, I've found. <laughs> There's a lot of people out there that do lack certain common sense. Like you, you said, you know, not using the same password for, you know, these things. There's people say, well, it's a different username. It's like, doesn't really matter, if I'm honest. If you're using a standard password across things. And the problem is, this is not a problem. A great thing is there's enough free solutions and enough solutions out there that people have access to where to stop these things from happening but people just aren't necessarily always made aware of it so it's you know it's some of the stuff i go into smaller businesses and you know like uh, marketing companies are a good one um, and accountancy smaller practices is they they are fantastic at what they do they're amazing at what they do but as soon as you speak to them about something like oh you know what are you doing for training your staff on fishing oh well that, that's to do with it we have a third-party it support company so couldn't care less that's what you're doing and part of the problem there is people don't want to take ownership they just want to pass it off to someone else um and it's it's not a thing of that they're doing it on purpose that they don't want to take ownership it's you know if you go to enough it support companies they'll say oh we do cyber security as a service oh what do you do we give you antivirus and a firewall and oh no once <laughs> I spoke to one IT support company that said that his customers had never been breached because all of them had WatchGuard and Minecast. And I was thinking, oh, I wish the Computer Misuse Act was not a thing because I'd prove you wrong by lunch. It was, <laughs> but part of, part of the problem is, is people just pass it off, but they don't want to know. They don't know and they don't need to know in the same way. It's like, I don't need to know accountancy. That's my accountant's problem, um, you know, for the most part. I need to understand certain aspects of it but year-end accounts is not my thing. So it's people are saying, oh, well, that's an IT. Cyber, as we said earlier, cyber is seen as an IT issue. Information security is seen as an IT issue when it's not. People need to understand there's a bigger picture and use common sense with things. It's like one of the things that annoys me most, which may annoy some of you guys, is I say to people, there is absolutely no issue with writing down all your passwords in a book at home. Couldn't care less if you do it. Just don't keep that book next to your laptop. Don't keep it at your desk. Don't have it in a book written in big text, all my passwords. Who has ever broken into someone's property thinking, oh, I'm going to ignore the jewelry, the cash, the iPads, the laptops, the TV. I'm looking for a book of passwords. Nobody. Doesn't happen. It's, you know, in, in theory, that if you I've, do that. Possible, I've seen that film. <laughs> it's you know in, in theory that that is probably as secure as using a password management tool almost because a password management tool in theory can be attacked from anywhere in the world if someone wants a password book they need to get into your property 
you know, if you've put it in, you know, in a safe in your bedroom or, you know, you've hid it somewhere else, they're not going to know to look for it. They don't know what it is. So it, it, there's this big stigma around a lot about what we do. Um, yeah. And it's, I think a lot of it comes down to the industries and things and people not necessarily knowing. So, you know, things like the legal aspect is what are the actual requirements and legal requirements and industry requirements of the organization as well. So again, in the UK, accountancies have absolutely, outside of GDPR, have zip, have nada, have no information security or data protection requirements, which is horrendous when you think of the information that they hold. It's so awful. Yep. Same with a lot of banks, like when I was getting a mortgage, they asked me to fax over my bank statements from my bank to these other places. Like, I'm sorry, I'm, there's absolutely zero chance I'm going to fax you anything. So, um, you know, it's, there's, it's, it's, it comes out, as we said earlier, and as um, you, you uh, Ronnie, actually brought up, James, was cybersecurity is seen as an IT issue. And we need to get outside of that and show people there's a bigger picture um, with these things as well. And just to sort of add to that point, I actually was working with a small business, 20 employees earlier this year. Um, they ended up actually storing the password, key password for 365 from a departed employee in Dropbox. Dropbox account got hacked. Everything else was hacked. Um, the biggest lesson learned for them was the sheer pain of having to report the data breach in all 50 states, because in the US, each state has their own data breach reporting requirements, right? Consultants dream. Um, and so I think that if more companies and more people are aware of that pain, I think people would just start like really good security hygiene because it's just, it's too painful. I think just overall adding to it, I think organizations need to really be prudent in their activities and just prove to the you know, legal, legal regulators that they are being due diligent in their activities and they are providing the relevant security awareness training, the relevant security controls, and they put all the miti mitigation controls in place if, if a malicious actor was to do something, they can turn around and say, hey, we've actually done our due diligence and here's why, and they can prove that they've done that. I think that will lessen the blow if it ever went to a, a legal standpoint. I think it needs to be shown that it's done regularly and an ongoing thing though, because yeah. what you said there, that's exactly what PCI regulations do. With that, you have to do an annual pen test and you should, you, you should potentially do training. There's no requirement that you have to do training now. So it needs to be shown that these um, industries all need to be updated to stay regular or ongoing, or at least be quarterly, at least, you know. But rather, regular is a horrendous term, and I just used it for an example, but it's awful because well, what's regular? We do it regularly. We do it once, in, once every 10 years. It's fine. <laughs> but like, I try and talk. Pen testing is an example I'm using it. Penetration testing, it's fantastic because everyone thinks it's... You know, it's the bee's knees of testing. I have spoken to quite a few companies and actually talked them out of doing pen testing if it's not a requirement for compliance or legal reasons. They said, well, why don't we actually look at doing a vulnerability management program instead and actually have a look at your scope? <laughs> you know, it's, why are you testing these systems that are locked down to, you know, certain AD and you've got all these, you know, mitigating controls around? Why are we testing them? and not actually testing this environment over here, um, which has far more um, exposure. Is that so? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's all about, it's, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned it earlier, actually, Christina, very well. It's doing a risk assessment of things. 
you know, you, you, if you, it comes back to what we said right at the beginning is if you don't understand what your threats are, you don't know what your risks are, you can't actually do a security program properly, no matter what it is. I mean, we've spoken about training lots, but, um, you know, if you look at Morrison's or Aldi or, you know, even Walmart for something, for, for to bring in casinos, how many of the retail people who sit at a till or stack shelves actually have such things as a, you know, a corporate email address? Probably a lot smaller. So it's you've got to understand where you're in things like with them, you know, it might be right, what information are you going to give away? How are we actually checking things like the payment devices? You know, because it's you know, you, it's understanding where your risks are and what part of the organization as well. And it's putting it all into perspective and context. Context is key in all of this. Context and you're actually understanding your risks. Okay. Um I'm Going to start us towards the last question now. There's a lot more in the Q&A that I'd actually like to ask, but this one comes from YouTube and is going to be potentially controversial or sensitive. Um, but I am going to tie it to one of our original questions. So one of the original three that I sent out to you all was what skills, traits or knowledge have you found lacking in your experience in security, exposing organisations or individuals to greater risk? And how would you like to see it resolved? And one of the ones that we got in on the YouTube channel was the biggest problem, more a statement than a question, but the biggest problem with security today is senior levels see it as a tick box compliance exercise. As long as they're compliant with standards that they're told they need to be compliant with, they don't tend to care if they're actually implementing best practices. Um, going beyond the best practices, let's say, since we're talking about universal skills, uh, they're not actually implementing the fundamentals so how would you address that at senior levels where these are people who are honestly some way above our pay grade, but how do you address that gap in knowledge where security is a cost, it's simply a tick box compliance? How do you deal with that? I have done a few projects with this where IT teams, information security teams have wanted to get more budget. So they've done social engineering and red teaming and targeted the C-suite. It's, uh, it's a risky method, but <laughs> done correctly, it works quite well because it drives home. Well, look, it's as Jason, you know, and you know, th th these are the ones that we've had to do for a legal requirement and things. But we've neglected outside of that. We've done this social engineering thing, and we've neglected all of it. And there's where we failed. We did one where we got past security, and um, because we held. Um, some Domino's pizza walking into an office and security opened the door and took a slice of pizza because we offered it. So that got us past security. So that was great. That was the first stage done. And then after that, it's, um, you know, it's, it's moving on from there. Um, so it's, it comes down to using examples in their industry as well. If, um, you know, when the, um, there was the Panama Papers leak, was that about four years ago? Um, something like that I think it was there was a big time, leak time has no meaning anymore it was yeah, a few it, years <laughs> ago <laughs> yeah I think it was actually Thursday um, there was a um, there was a big breach where a wealth management company lost lots and all their customers data a load of very wealthy people and wealthy companies data who were keeping assets offshore we'll say and then from there I was working with a couple of wealth management companies both of them suddenly had a lot of budget for their information security and their security 
because something had happened in their industry. Sometimes the people at C-suite, they just need to be kicked, for lack of a better phrase. They just need something to um, scare them. You know, a bit of shock value is, again, it comes back to what Jay said, sometimes shocking people is the best thing as long as you do something from it afterwards. You don't just shock them and just do a runner like, ah, look at this, bye. Just do one. You actually need to do something with it and make it useful and take it somewhere. And that is one of the best ways of doing it. And I have found of getting C-suite buy-in. I think you just use business speak. Honestly, I love going to the C-suite and I love going to the board of directors and I use the words fiduciary responsibility because that means something to them, right? And so I think that we need to actually speak in business terms because they are business people. When we start talking about security and threats and breaches, like literally they imagine them themselves on a beach having a pina colada with a fruity um, you know, umbrella in it or something. And so I think you have to go back and, and use business term and business speak and give them options. So I don't need thousands and millions of euros to do this program, but here is the cost. If you want me to do X for the business and that's the opportunity, then these are the risks and this is what it costs. And so I think if you flip it on that head, it actually does get resonance. It does actually get, I can't see that I'm too old. I just see a lovely murky green. Yeah, yeah unfortunately my on, James. blur is uh, <laughs> blurring it. Give me one second. If you put it over your face, it might work. If you want business oh. speak. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, I think you have to go back to the, the business speak aspect. I think that business people understand business speak. I think that we have to put the risk and the opportunity in that context. And it's a very simple, what would you like to do? And I always come at it inside of the organization towards business people saying like, you don't have to do any security. Like you have to do zero security. You don't have to do anything. Here is what could happen to you. Are you willing to deal with the fallout? And the answer is usually, no, I'm not comfortable with that, right? But I always give them the option because it's their choice, right? It's their choice to either do security practices or not. It's their choice to do GDPR or not. It's their choice to do whatever or not. But the reality is that everything has a consequence and there's a business consequence. And so you have a fiduciary duty. You signed on as a leader for this organization or you're on the board of directors. And will you hold true to the commitments you made if you don't uphold this? What choice would you like to make? I think one of the biggest things that gets people twitching is when <clears throat> someone in the industry, so a competitive company gets hacked. So let's just say that you're, you know, in a, you're in a shipping company and as a, a rival shipping company, they've been hacked. You think, oh, oh, wait, we're in this industry. Are we a target? And I, I think it starts to trickle down. I think when, big media starts you know, going, oh, big hack, and all these hackers are just ruining people's lives. They, people start to read the news and think, oh, are we, are we safe? Are we safe? Well, we're, we don't know. Honestly, that's, that's, we don't know if we're safe because you know, you, you're not putting enough money in here. We, we haven't got the visibility that we need because no one seems to listen to our message. And then all of a sudden, they're like, wow, they're, they've been destroyed. Could we be destroyed? We don't know. You know let, us, let us do our thing and we could help you. And then all of a sudden, security gets enabled. And then, you know, people start to calm down a little bit. The pulses started to die down. But until that happens, I think, you know, yeah, security are running blind. They're fighting fires. And I think if we get enabled by the, the shock factor, we can help businesses secure themselves. And, and we, we can get, be proactive in delivering a good security mm -hmm. program if we have, you know, the right visibility, the, the right funding, the right talent, the right amount of skills, you know, 
it doesn't even have to be expensive. Security doesn't have to be expensive. It can, you can run a good security program on a budget. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go for a finishing question now because I like this one and then we'll uh, close off. I'll stop the live stream. You'll no longer be on record, but I, I will keep this session going in case you want to talk to the audience. I'll just promote them all to panellists while I go get dinner if you want to stick around. But, and I'm making this one universal, uh, how do you become multilingual in multiple varied stakeholder speak? From a security point of view, although it can apply almost anywhere, uh, this is one I'd really like an answer to because I've got a few different areas I can now talk to in their own language, but I can't talk to every area of a business. So how do you get to that point? What fundamental skills do you need to talk to every area of the business? I Personally, I, I have my answer and then I have what I think other people should do. So I learned my multilingualism within the organization by literally playing every role possible. I started in the dot-com space. Um, I started very early on cold fusion, if you remember the days of cold fusion development uh, in HTML writing and worked my way up. I was a project manager. I was a tester. I was a really bad Java developer for a very short period of time. Thank God they removed me from that. Um, I built servers uh, to NIST standards. Um, I've done CMS selection, I've done content development, I've done Photoshop design, which I'm really horrible at. Um, but I think what trying everything out and working even for a day with different folks throughout the organization allows you to do is not just learn their speak, but really be able to empathize with their problems and to understand them. And that allows you to natively speak their language because you can identify with them, they can trust you and you have a kind of common starting place to start from. So I always encourage people to spend an hour, two hours, half a day, a day if possible, working with your stakeholders, with your counterparts, and just observe them, follow them, try and understand what their job is all about. And I think if you come from that point of empathy and um, understanding, I think that you can actually build. And if you misspeak by chance, they'll forgive you and you can continue still to build a relationship and get stakeholder buy-in. I think it comes down to how you got there as well. So um, from a point of, if you're being brought in as a consultant, an expert externally from outside of the companies, who actually brought you in as well? Mm -hmm. So was it actually the C-suite that, that brought you in and selected you anyway? In which case they will probably tend to listen to you a lot more, tend to take on board what you're saying and listen more so, so you can start, you don't necessarily have to speak their exact language as long as you're, you understand it, you can give examples that they'll understand, that you'll tend to get the message across quite well. If you were brought in by someone within the company who wasn't there, who has been pushing this, they may tend to be a little bit more standoffish. So in which case you need to take a bit more time um, to understand the organization, understand the C-suite and things a little bit more so as well. Um, and then it actually also it comes down to the, the C-suite themselves, you know, what industry are they in? You know, is it, are they part of a social media, you know, is it someone like Unilad, for example, where the C-suite is going to tend to be a little bit younger than the C-suite at Barclays Bank or something like that. So it's, it's, you need to understand the type of company that you're doing it with as well. So yes, you could have worked with lots of what, you know, um, as you said, Jim, you know, you've had lots of experience or, you know, so many, lots of experience with lots of different companies that might 
be the right fit you might have it there you may not think oh, i i have no experience you know working with a social media company but is that all? but actually you know i've got lots of experience working with retail and with fashion and you know with younger brands in which case okay i can actually you know i'm going to understand the kind of ethos and stuff what they're going to be like because they're a little bit younger rather than an aged <laughs> where there's uh <laughs> there's more you know hair dye in there than there is natural color <laughs> you've got to understand um certain things like that and it's giving examples that they will understand as well um for getting a message across the c-suite they're not going to understand it a lot of time if you speak cyber talk you speak information security you need to put stuff into context you need to say right c-suite as we said earlier it's you're going more into business talk is how is this going to impact the business? Because for them, that affects their pocket more so, which is what most C-suites care about, if we're honest. Whereas as you go down the company, they came more, they actually end up caring more about the people within the organization as well. So it's there's a different, there's a completely different vibe as you work your way up anyway. And it depends how you got brought into a company as to how you're going to be taken um, there as well. Again, I did a tangent, sorry. It's, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully it was relevant. It, it was. Uh, Jay, and then we'll go into closing words and bid farewell to our live streaming audience. I, th I think, honestly, the, the, uh, I think Lee and Christina really hit the spot. I think you really need to you know, go to their level. You need to be personal with them and, and you know, understand what their gripes are, understand what their goals are. And I think once you, once you start to get on a personal level with people, you can really start to speak to them. A bit more personally and that's where you get messages across if you're speaking from two different levels the communi communication is going to it's just not going to hit you're not going to get the bounce that you need and it's just going to be fruitless okay so i'm going to do a thought for the day for all of those watching at home um i actually agree with everything here it is about talking to the people and one of the biggest problems we have in security is often we're a very distant function who operate in our own area because there just aren't enough of us to talk to everyone but I have solved so many more problems by having a two-minute conversation with someone than I have with having eight two-hour meetings um, I am going to end the live streams here I hope you've enjoyed the session all of you watching on YouTube and I realize that doesn't make sense but all of you on YouTube are on that scheme screen all of you on periscope are over there um <clears throat> we'll end the session here i hope you've enjoyed it i would really appreciate feedback on whether this is a useful thing i'm thinking given the way it's gone this should be a podcast but i'll just check with the uh, panic lists whether that's appropriate <laughs> for it and i'm going to kill the live stream session now so uh, nice to meet you all on those two screens